Hello, and welcome to Nipton Talks. This is Dr. Asherobi, and I have Tara Covey, nurse practitioner, with me. And today we are going to be talking about weight loss. Hey, Dr. Roby, it's great to be here. Thanks for coming on again. We did briefly touch on weight loss during our anti aging medicine overview, but I thought it was such an important subject that we could certainly devote easily an hour or more about it. But just to hone in on some of the specifics of weight loss, to recap, in the United States, two thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. So it's a huge problem. And it leads to about one third of total mortality for Americans. So it has some downstream effects that are very pertinent to living a long and healthy life. For sure. So interestingly, part of what spawned this whole Live Better MD anti-aging medicine approach was this exact problem. So as a plastic surgeon, I see a lot of patients for not only face, but body contouring concerns. And so I would see a lot of patients that would come into my office saying things like, I, I want a tummy tuck. I'm okay with my weight, but I don't like this role and this area of fullness here and this pouch there. And just telling the patient, well, go lose 80 pounds and come back and then we'll do that surgery you're talking about seemed unhelpful. So is that how the motivation came up for you here? Just not having a good tool for your patient in-house? It did because I initially would send patients elsewhere and I never saw any of them back. And I don't mean that because I'm disappointed because I never became a surgical patient, but I never saw anyone back after all those referrals to come back and see me and say, hey, look at all this weight I've lost and I feel good and I want to do the next step. So that was really demotivating for me because I wanted to see patients get to their goal. And so having someone like you as part of the team who can really help our various patients hone in on what it is that is contributing to their excess weight. And I don't think it's always as simple as calories in and calories out. I mean, that is going to be the crux of a lot of issues, but it's more complex than that. Oh, absolutely. I just think the more that I have learned about weight gain, obesity, chronic weight issues, there's so much growing evidence that obesity is a disorder of energy homeostasis system flaws rather than just the passive accumulation of weight over time. And a lot of times these problems problems compound each other. It can become a vicious circle and that carrying extra weight leads to more inflammation, which leads to more weight gain, more dysbiosis. Decreased tolerance of activity. It's just a vicious cycle. Right. So just telling someone who's already struggling with that, just, okay, well, I know it hasn't been working the past 20 years, but this time you're going to do it. It didn't seem like a helpful suggestion to them. I'm super excited that Tara's on board part of the team because we've turned that around and we actually are getting a lot of patients to get to that healthier weight. Yeah. One of the things that I was so happy to learn in this space was that you as a surgeon care for that person as a whole. And I have never worked with another plastic surgeon, so I can't speak to how that looks within the field. But I think that it is so great that you want them to meet their aesthetic goals, but also you want them to feel like a happy whole person. That's true. Certainly, It's not that these patients can't have surgeries. It's not that they couldn't find someone to do that surgery for them at that weight. But when it comes to outcomes, primarily results and minimal complications, having that extra weight is not helpful. So not only will your results be poor, meaning maybe you still have a lot of visceral fat, you still have a lot of fat in other parts of your body. If you have a tummy tuck, that thickness of the upper abdomen is still probably too thick, all of those pieces. So not only are the results worse, but you also have a higher risk of complications. So things like wound healing issues, that's definitely higher in people that are obese and and DVT. So deep venous thrombosis, that's where you have a clot in your legs. And if that travels to your lungs, which it can, that can be life-threatening. So it's all about what can we do to make you not only look better and feel better, but also do it at the lowest risk possible to you. For surgery, that's where weight loss comes in. Speaking to that process, when I I see patients that do come from you and they want to talk to me about weight loss. One of the big conversations I have with the patients is sometimes people just have a little bit to lose to get to the BMI target that you have discussed with them. Mm-hmm. So maybe they just need to lose 15 pounds to get the target BMI, but then but then I really feel good at 40 pounds less. Sure. So I talk to those patients about, okay, let's talk about the palate that you're giving to the surgeon to work on. And if you just lose 10 pounds and then you go ahead and have your combination lipo tummy tuck surgery, and then you, the surgeon would then spread the 
canvas and make the palette look the way is appropriate to what she was given. And then over the next year, we lose that other 40 pounds. We've just changed the canvas that we gave to the surgeon. And so then are, are the results not what we had hoped because we changed the work after the fact? Or are we in line then for wanting a second surgery? And so I think those conversations are so important. There's not a right or wrong path, but mm. there's an informed path there. That's so true. And I'll have patients say things like that to me frequently, like, okay, well, maybe I'll just lose the weight later. Well, you can, but it comes at a cost. It's the two things you said. So either you have more loose skin, or let's say you did a fat transfer to an area. Well, some of that fat is shrunken and not really visible anymore. So usually a decrease in the aesthetic outcome in some way. I mean, maybe some areas will be better. Or you're having another surgery to correct the fact that things have changed. Right. So most patients, if they know they can get optimal results in one surgery as opposed to two, it seems like a no-brainer. They would prefer that. And I would too. And then the second point, just kind of bouncing off of your surgical patient, because we do see that quite a bit, surgical patients with the weight loss goal. The other thing I talk to them about, because you get excited, you get this surgery plan and you get these goals and it really, realness brings up to the process. And they're like, I'm going to have my surgery in November. Well, let's talk about calorie maintenance. Mm -hmm. So when a patient is losing weight, what are we doing with the body? We're breaking down tissue. We're asking our body to break that down. And then if we have surgery immediately, we're asking that body to do an about face and repair a surgical wound. So I think patients are often surprised to hear that we as a team recommend three months of maintenance calories before surgery and three months of maintenance calories after surgery before pursuing additional weight loss. That is absolutely true. It can be really tough for your body to go from catabolic to anabolic, which is what you were just saying. So sometimes a body can pull it off, but you and I don't have a crystal ball to say which bodies can do it and which ones can't. And the ones that cannot, oh man, that can be devastating. So just imagine every single incision just falling apart. It's not what anyone wants. It's not what the patient wants. It's not what the surgeon wants. It's just not worth it. It's not an emergency. Let's do it right the first time. So yeah. Being stable is super important because having surgery on your body is stressful enough. And then to try to get your body to do a 180 about face at the same time is just really playing with fire. So I don't advocate for that. The other thing, okay, so we were talking a little bit about how it's not all about calories in and calories out. That is the crux of it. Having an appropriate caloric intake, having regular exercise, that's going to be the central focus of a healthy lifestyle. But what are some of the other things that maybe people don't think about with regard to why am I gaining weight? Have you had some experience with other contributors? Absolutely. So what we're finding with the study of weight loss and supporting weight loss within the medical field is that there can be a body set point. There can be genetic factors that influence that body's weight maintenance. And so even bouncing off of animal studies where you have a genetically predisposed animal that is a high BMI and then a subset that is a low BMI. When they're given those calorie excess or calorie deficit, they're going to gain and lose weight respectively. But then when they go back to basic metabolic rate calories, which is just what your body needs at a baseline rest functioning, they will go back to that set point, that genetic predisposition. So we're finding that that plays into it. There's environmental influences socioeconomic status, chemical exposures, of course, sedentary lifestyle, all of these confer an obesity risk for our patients that interact with those genetic, epigenetic, which is how our genes are expressed and developmental factors that will predispose someone to obesity. One of the more fascinating topics that I don't know if we're ready to dive into yet (laughs) is the gut microbiome. It's one of those which came first, the chicken or the egg. So our diet affects our gut microbiome and then our microbiome interacts with our system signaling us to crave certain foods, to extract more energy from foods or less energy from foods, signaling to our neurological system for mood, behavior, motivation. And so when the gut gets the healthy prebiotics, you know, probiotics and Mm -hmm. having that diverse gut, we have more likelihood of success for losing weight or maintaining a healthy weight status. And when we feed it high fat, high energy, high inflammatory foods, you're more likely to feed the gut microbiome that signals cravings of fat and sugar. And it, it is this whole ecosystem going on inside of our systems. I agree. That's getting back to that vicious circle component. One of the other challenging things about 
the microbiome is that eating healthy in general tends to be a little more expensive. So not only organic versus not organic, but locally sourced fresh vegetables versus canned processed preservative laden vegetables that are treated with insecticides and pesticides. Well, in region of the country, region of the world that you live in, all affects that gut microbiome. It is very interesting to me. I was reading a study from King's College of London that there's an influence of the accumulation of abdominal fat, specifically deep visceral fat. That's the fat that accumulates around our organs that you were referring to earlier that it's so detrimental and a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases such as diabetes and cancer. So a poor diet and sedentary lifestyle actually increases that visceral fat accumulation. And they're finding that it is also related to a poorer distribution of gut microbiome. So So by microbiome, you mean all the various bacteria that are living within your gastrointestinal tract. We're looking at the body on a cellular level Mm -hmm. and the bacteria in our body outweigh our human cells a hundred to one. That's crazy. So when you think about more bacteria than human, more (laughs) bacteria than human, ignoring the fact that what we're feeding that gut and those trillions of bacteria, that's a whole ecosystem that's influencing our brain signaling. It influences our vagus nerve. It influences the way we break down food and how we're able to extract it. And then where our body places that fat. So in this instance, the visceral fat. So the vagus nerve, for those of you that are unfamiliar, is cranial nerve 10. And it's a direct connection from your brain to your GI tract. Right. And so these bacteria, when they signal the vagus nerve to tell you eat more sugar, sugar sounds really good. French fries, please. Yes. What it is doing (laughs) is it's trying to crowd out the other bacteria Mm because it's every man for himself in the gut. And so if it can feed itself and grow its numbers, it will crowd out the others. Whereas if we eat more things like fiber, fur, yogurts, and things like that, we're, Mm -hmm. we're feeding a more diverse microbiome and therefore will shut down some of that that's going to do the sugar signaling. So you kind of think about what's on sale at the supermarket today? What am I going to eat? But how much is actually going on on the inside that we aren't even really aware of? Probably just so much. And certainly from the perspective of gut health and the importance of your gastrointestinal bacteria, that's something that is newer to the scene of medicine. As a medical student, that's been a while at this point, we didn't even talk about that. I remember as a resident, someone talking about probiotics after surgery might be helpful. And I'm like, oh, cool, interesting. And And, that was about it. And more so in the verbiage that I was taught was to counteract the fact that we are going to be changing the gut with perioperative antibiotics, yes. you can get thank you with the destruction of the healthy bacteria. It was reactive, and mm-hmm. and so for the layperson to just have the probiotics, unless you were a woman battling frequent yeast infections, someone with an immune problem that had thrush in their mouth, mm-hmm. or post-op antibiotics, that's no one my... was thinking about why they needed probiotics. So yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a new shift in the thinking. And there's some data that suggests having a diverse, meaning lots of different kinds of bacteria, microbiome is better for you and things like having a vaginal delivery when you're born versus a cesarean delivery that plays a role. So a vaginal delivery, you're exposed to the flora within your mother's vagina versus a C-section is the skin bacteria. So staphylococcus, streptococcus. There's a difference, one being better than the other. Same thing for being breastfed. Having the natural probiotics that you receive when you're a breastfeeding baby helps reduce things like ear infections and recurrent sore throat. So that data has been out for a while and people have known that for a while. But as we find out more and more about how important it is. I think it's it's pretty fascinating. It's so important. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I spent 11 years in labor and delivery before I became a nurse practitioner. And so we had a protocol for cesarean delivered births. We would swab the mother's vaginal canal and then use that same gauze to swab the babies, trying to mimic that. That's how important 
important bacterial transfer is to the growing baby. Interesting. No, I didn't know you guys did that. Did you do that the whole time? We did it while I was in practice there as part of a study with a residential team. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it got turned into full Oh, okay. So it's not like it was the absolute protocol. It was something you guys were exploring. Yeah. It makes sense. Certainly. Trying to recreate that. I mean, it sounds weird smearing a vaginal gauze against your child's face. I can vividly remember the meeting where they told us what we were going to be doing. (laughs) It was very colorful. But when you look at the science of it and how important that bacterial transfer is, it does make sense. You know, gosh, we could go down a rabbit hole with that. The, The other stuff I've been really reading a lot about with gut microbiome is the fecal transfers, Mm. you know, and how they had to really pull back on it because an unintended side effect of this fecal transfer trying to treat people with C. diff, which Mm -hmm. was, you know, Clostridium difficile, which can cause really terrible diarrhea and can be resistant. Usually it's from antibiotics. And so it's very difficult to treat and it can be detrimental, especially to our older population. But they found that after doing these fecal transfers, if it was from an obese patient to a thinner patient, the patient could then become obese after the fecal transfer because of that transfer of gut microbiome changing the signaling from the gut. There's actually this company that I follow called humanmicrobes.org. And so they screen Americans and Canadians trying to find the perfect poop. And so 0.1% of the population will have the right healthy microbiome that they could then use to transfer to other patients. But they'll pay you $500 per poop if you qualify. Can you just, can they just grow that? (laughs) I guess it's not the same. I guess it's super difficult to get that. All of that huge variety. Yes, to get that diversity. I could see that. So one thing I think is interesting with regards to uh, bacteria that comes back into play with, you know, having unhealthy bacteria and gut inflammation is that some bacteria, and it's usually gram-negative bacteria, so by that a gram negative gram positive just means it's a certain stain you can do for the cell wall of the bacteria some of them look red on a stain and some of them look purple but so that's lab talk i know that's lab talk but when you're talking about like okay look at all these bacteria you're trying to parse them out like these are like this and these are like that so that's a common way people will differentiate one versus the other so usually gram negative gram positive and then either rods or cocci right so balls are rods (laughs) balls and rods rods. but so some of the gram negative bacteria so one of those would be something like e coli that's a gram negative bacteria can release lipopolysaccharides and those are endotoxins so toxins that can cause inflammation in the gut and can lead to systemic inflammation. And so your gut lining is really the first line of defense against what is actually getting in your body. So even though it seems like the inside of your gut is in your body, it's kind of not. I mean, it's just a tube from your mouth to your anus where some of that stuff's getting in and some of it's your body's going to push right back out. So your skin on the outside that you can see, it's kind of like the skin on the inside that you can't see. So it's the first line of defense where your body is deciding what are we going to allow on the inside and what are we rejecting. And if you have a leaky gut, some of those tight junctions, one cell of the intestinal lining versus another, that can allow for more things that your body wouldn't otherwise want to get in. And that can be a really big problem with regards to things like autoimmunity. Some of the things that can get in can closely mimic other parts of your body and your body's going to want to attack that thing, but also the other part of your body that doesn't want to attack. So you went into a lot there and I feel like my brain went from a horrible movie that I didn't ever watch, but I heard a lot about to, you know what movie I mean? No, what movie? (laughs) There's so many horrible movies that I haven't watched and I don't want to watch. I know half of the population and they're like, what is she talking about? And the other half are like, oh my gosh, human centipede. Now I can't unsee it. No, I don't want to see that. That's disgusting. I never watched it. I heard enough about it. I was definitely thinking the horror genre when you said a movie I don't want to watch. (laughs) Because I don't want to see a lot of those horror movies. But let's circle back. You said a lot of things that maybe people aren't familiar with. So how many cell walls thick is your intestinal tract? It's it's only one, right? Yeah, one. super thin. I'm not here at your lips and your esophagus, but Mm -hmm. down there in the intestinal lining. Then you were talking about tight junctions, and I don't know that... Those are the little, basically, one cell where it's sitting next to the other one. It's a little space or or lack of a space in between them. So so what's wrong with not having a good tight junction? Why would that be detrimental? Well, all the things that your body wouldn't ordinarily want to have come on board can just make their way right in. From an immunological standpoint, your body's 
somebody's immune system, one of the jobs is to provide surveillance. It's looking for things that shouldn't be there. And if they identify it, they will attack it and try to get rid of it. But the problem is that some of the things that we consume look very similar to other parts of our body. So one of the common issues are things like gluten and your thyroid. So some people that have gluten sensitivity can develop autoimmune thyroid issues or a myriad of autoimmune issues, really. But yeah, I I, I guess my point is that there's a lot more than just, okay, well, you consumed 1,600 calories and you burned 1,700 today, so good job, you're well on your way. That's helpful, but part of what we do as providers would be delving quite a bit further into that because there are other things other than calories in, calories out, like food allergies, hormone imbalances, neurotransmitter imbalances, inflammation, sleep. So sleep plays an important role in your body's normal home homeostasis, stress, certainly from an occupational perspective. It was interesting to see like what are considered to be the most stressful jobs. And it wouldn't be the ones that I think it it actually tends to be more of jobs where that person doesn't really have a lot of control of where they're supposed to be and when they're supposed to be there and all the expectations and they're told every single thing they have to do. And if it's not exactly how it's supposed to be, then they're going to hear about it. Yeah. High stress and low power. Right. That scale balancing so to speak, is really tilted. So as far as impact on your body, that can be really tough for that group of patients because the power structure in their line of work is not favorable for them. Right. Well, and then also that socioeconomic status could play a part. Mm-hmm stress management, you know, if you're having to work two jobs. Yeah, if you're working two jobs, it's hard to want to come home and make a fresh meal. You are more likely to say, well, I'm exhausted and I see McDonald's right there. So that's what it's going to be. Yeah. Well, and you were talking about some more of the inflammation. So there is also evidence that our gut microbiome has an impact on colon inflammation, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and then of course the inflammation that contributes to metabolic disorders and resistance. I think the NASH, the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is pretty interesting. It's probably something that's underdiagnosed. The number of patients that have these elevated transaminases, so your ALT and your AST, it's not insignificant. And I don't know that it really gets a lot of attention from the average provider. Like, oh, it's kind of high. Well, it's fine. But it certainly can be suggestive of inflammation in your body, certainly inflammation in your liver after alcohol-related hepatitis and, and some of the like hepatitis A's and the viral hepatitis is, is one of the bigger contributors to having liver issues. I wonder if that's less recognized because it is non-alcoholic and so there's less awareness maybe by the healthcare team and the patient to look out for it. I'm just speculating. I don't know. I think potentially we'll have patients that are getting routine panels prior to surgery and I don't see it that irregularly and it is a bit of a jump to say, well, everything's good, but you know, before surgery, by the way, have your liver looked at. I don't think it's that simple, but something that could require or could benefit from further evaluation. Well, and it's funny that you would go into that because one of the articles that I was reading was referencing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It states the liver is continuously exposed to gut-derived signals, including those from bacterial components, and it gets 70% of the blood supply from the portal vein, which has direct venous outflow from the intestines. So if you have this leaky gut, this inflammation signal going on, it's going straight to the liver. So yeah, it can be one of the first organs affected by having a significantly inflamed GI tract. One of the medications that we prefer to use for medically assisted weight loss has a positive effect on NASH, clinically speaking, and then in studies. I saw another study that was talking about patients that had bariatric surgery. I want to say it was the gastric bypass, but they saw those patients oftentimes because they were so heavy had diabetes uh, preoperatively and they would see immediate improvements in their glucose homeostasis, meaning their insulin levels and their glucose levels, even though they hadn't reached their ideal weight. And they proposed that it was related to the microbiome changes that occur with rerouting your intestines. Interesting. Yeah. So we talked a lot about the things that can contribute to weight gain. Let's talk about some of the things that 
we can help people do to lose weight? Right. What are some of the tricks that you like to employ? And no, they're not tricks. What are some of the tools? <laughs> tricks. We tried all the tricks. The tricks yeah. didn't work. That's why we're here today. Well, I think one of the most important things about the patients that I see in their initial onboarding into the Live Better program when weight loss is the focus is that we've done that deep dive into the background. So we are checking on contributors to weight gain. And so those things would be like optimal thyroid hormone being available to the system. Your thyroid hormone, for those of you that don't know, is in charge of your metabolism, amongst many of the other things. Right. But But it sets your metabolic rate. So people that have low thyroid levels, so their T3 or T4 are low, and so their TSH will be high, they can present with fatigue and weight gain. They have like thin hair and dry skin. skin. But oftentimes the providers will only check TSH. So TSH is part of that feedback loop that your body would signal to make that go up if those other T3 or T4 levels were low. So it's more helpful to have a full panel because you are more likely to miss things. So T3 is the much more highly active form of thyroid hormone, but its half-life is so short. So most of the time when we do oral replacements, it's in the form of T4. But some people will do T3 replacements too. Some people like how they feel better on a mixture of T3 and T4. But yeah, that's definitely an important one. We look at that and then also the autoimmune antibodies related to the thyroid. Sometimes people will have a normal TSH, but their antibodies are really high. So it's just a ticking time bomb. And by antibodies to thyroid, meaning... Thyroid antibodies are antibodies that develop when a person's immune system mistakenly targets components of the thyroid gland or thyroid proteins, leading to chronic inflammation of the thyroid, also known as thyroiditis, tissue damage, and disruption of thyroid function. So No good. Yeah. It's not uncommon, though, to see people come in and and have these thyroid antibodies that have never been checked. Maybe they've been on thyroid replacement for a long time, upping it every year or so. And so that's an important component of that clinical picture. But that's just one part of it. We do look at finding elevated liver enzymes, a kidney function, you know, just making sure that everything we're doing is starting with all the information that we need. And then oftentimes when I see people, they've been on a diet or two. They've tried a lot of the things and they've tried maybe even extreme diets and been successful. I had a patient said, well, I was eating 500 calories a day and I lost 40 pounds. And then, oh, the HCG diet? Uh-huh. The yeah. human chorionic? Like, of course you lost of course you lost weight. Yeah. You're starving yourself. <laughs> right. Well, I know you and I have said this before, but the best diet is really just a permanent lifestyle change. So it has to be something that you can say to yourself, I can do this forever. Not just like, oh, I'll do this for a little bit and then I'll go back to doing whatever I was doing. Because obviously how you, whatever you were doing before wasn't working. So you can't have a plan that's, I'll just transiently do this one thing and then do what I always did before because that's what led you to the bad place you were in in the first place. Right. So yeah, any kind of successful plan is going to, involve permanent lifestyle changes. The HCG diet, it works, but that's because you're only consuming like 500 calories. I get a lot of people that ask me like, Tara, just give me a plan of two weeks of meals and that's what I'll eat. Okay, but what happens when Mm -hmm. you get tired of those 14 meals, right? So rather than give someone a meal plan, we talk about what you prefer to eat, what your family prefers to eat. I try not to get people making four meals for four family members. Yeah, that's not reasonable. It's, It's not sustainable. Can you do it for a little while? while motivation is high? Absolutely. But can you do that forever? Probably not. And you're just probably not going to. So it's about setting people up for success and coming up with reasonable plans that you think they can actually follow through on and maintain. So another medication that I have people coming in a lot to see me for is Adipex which is fentermine. Right. So that is a stimulant and increases your metabolism. Usually most people are only take it for three months at a time, although I've certainly seen people on it quite a bit longer. People do tend to lose weight on it, not across the board, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard the same story. Oh, I took fentermine for three months and I lost weight and then I got off and I gained it back and I saw my doctor again and then I waited a couple more months and then put it back on. And I, lost it. I mean, okay, you've been doing this for a couple of years, so it's not working. Right. Let's do something different. Yeah. 
Yeah. But a lot of people will just fall back into the same routine because they did see some results, but it didn't stick once they got off the medication. Yeah, we, we're more motivated to do something that can help you move forward long term. Also, hitting all those other key aspects that are helping a more favorable gut health, decreasing the inflammation on your total system so you feel like you can move more, so that your brain is resting when you're sleeping and restoring itself. And then using medications when needed or peptide therapy when needed that is favorable on the overall system. So not something that's going to put you into, you know, a hypertensive state, something that strains the heart, and preferably not something that you can only do for a short while and then fall off of the wagon. We're all on a diet, right? We all probably ate today unless you're fasting. And so rather than being on a diet that you only do till you hit that 15 pound mark or whatever your goal might be, lifestyle changes. So this is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about fasting. Do you employ that much in your patient treatment plans? It can be useful for different reasons. One reason being if you are in a fasted state, you're not consuming calories during that time, right? So it can be a form of calorie restriction. Some of us thrive under rules. You know, if you set yourself a rule that I don't eat after 7 p.m., then you're not taking in the popcorn and the ice cream and the things Mm -hmm. that you sneak out of the freezer when the kids get in bed, right? (laughs) And so sometimes we need those rules rules. There's also been data to state that it helps with cellular regeneration, especially Mm -hmm. in the gut. If your gut is in a constant fed state, it never gets a chance to finish its job of digestion and go into cellular repair. That's one of the reasons why you don't eat a couple hours before you go to bed. So certainly when you're asleep, people are not eating then. I mean, you're not waking up and having a bite of your donut or whatever, and then going back to sleep. But that is the opportunity for your body to do a lot of cellular repair, not just in the gastrointestinal tract, but throughout your body. Eating food itself is an inflammatory thing, unfortunately. Right. So having periods where you're not eating, like you were alluding to, does help with longevity. There have been a fair amount of studies in mice. Again, we go back to the mice because our lifespan's so short. Where they see prolonged lifespan and more vitality in the calorie-restricted group as compared to the group of mice that pretty much ate whatever they wanted. There's some evidence that it helps with stem cell regeneration as well, which comes into that anti-inflammatory and longevity aspect. Yes. People use the calorie restriction or the intermittent fasting for more than just weight loss. They use it for the anti-aging benefits, the improved inflammation, all of those things. There's the the fasting mimicry diet, which we could do a whole talk on diets and different ways to eat. But going five days without eating at all, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of people willing or interested in doing that. Well, and there's a lot of different forms of fasting, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have intermittent fasting. They have people that cycle one day on, one day off. You have fasting related to religious activities. Sure. So I think people will throw out the term fasting and think that it is all encompassing, but there's a lot of different ways that fasting is used. But then we always want to encourage people to take safety into consideration if they have risks for glucose dropping, if you're already a diabetic, then fasting may not be the right thing for you to do. So take that into consideration. So you talked a little bit about peptide therapy. Which, what peptides have you liked and which ones do you find yourself utilizing the most in your practice? Well, there's different peptides that really shine in different ways. When it comes to weight loss, there's a peptide that was FDA approved this past year. And so it's been really popular in the weight loss industry. Semaglutide is the generic yeah. name. And so it has been a game changer. It really helps with the signaling from the gut, the feeling of fullness and decreasing cravings for patients. So I know we've talked about this before, but diet and exercise alone statistically runs about 5% of weight loss when people are successful. And semaglutide people can lose like 15% of their body mass. So it can be a game changer for a lot of people. It started as a diabetic medication. And then when diabetics would lose weight would also complement that improvement in their hemoglobin A1C. And so these patients can take this medication for a longer time and it 
it has been shown to be favorable to the cardiovascular system. So they can take it without the worries that they're going to trade one problem for another. <laughs> That's one of the challenges with the stimulants is that to increase your metabolism, you're increasing your heart rate, you're increasing the workload of your entire body, and, and then, that's stressful. And then there's also some worry that some patients may develop poor habits with a medication that's a stimulant and use it in ways that are not beneficial for them or get used to taking them to rely on it for the energy. And so there's a lot of other things to think about when you use a medication like that. Not saying that it doesn't have a place in therapy, but it is with some cautions, as most things are. For um, sure. So some other peptides that we have explored using tessamorelin actually was FDA approved for lipodystrophy in AIDS patients. And so that adipose tissue accumulation around the midsection, so it can be helpful to target belly fat in patients that tend to accumulate there in the midsection. It also can help with body redistribution or recomposition, so trying to target building muscle and lean tissue. I have one of the sisters of tessamorelin. I've had with the epimorelin. I've had some experience with that, but more in the anti-aging doses as opposed to specifically weight loss. When you combine the CJC 1295 and the epimorelin, that can be helpful, but I don't think compared to the semaglutide that it's as effective right. as far as weight loss goes. Well, and that's why I think that it shines more in that midsection area rather than for overall weight loss. The thing that is helpful with semaglutide is that it has been approved for long-term obesity management. And so I always try to be transparent with my patients. You can come off of semaglutide and we can see if we've made enough change, but if your body's pre- determined set point is higher and we haven't made enough lifestyle change to compensate for that, mm. it may be a medication that people take long-term. But having to consider, would I rather take a weight management medicine or a hypertension me- medicine? Right, or diabetes, diabetes med- medicine. Or a heart failure medicine. Sure. And so that can be something to discuss as people start to hit their goals. We had explored a little bit of the, the prepackaged food because there is something nice to having something prepared in our already portioned out appropriately. But you're right, the long-term usefulness of relying on 10 different meals exclusively is not great. Right. There's a convenience factor. Everyone is so busy. And so you have to be realistic about how much your lifestyle can change and how much you're willing to change. And then where your happy set point weight is for you. Where are you comfortable in your body? And so we do use measures like BMI, but BMI only tell one part of the story. Tell me about the body scan that you guys have been using. Well, first off, so everyone, we do a BMI, right? Because it's kind of a way that we use to talk about comparing to social groups. Right. So So BMI, body mass index, is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. So basically, it's a number that gives you some relevance of your weight to height ratio. And we can use it to talk about population level numbers. So it also is good for statistics and how we see complications of obesity displayed in different BMI ranges. So when we talk about it with individual patients, though, it's not reliable for clinical use because there's so many factors that would impact your BMI, like increased skeletal muscle. These bodybuilders are going to look like they have a BMI in the obesity range, but... Yeah, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is obese. Right, right. But then also on the flip side of that, we get very muscle poor older people who have a lot of accumulation of fat mm-hmm. around the midsection and their BMI may say they're fine yeah. when we know their cardiovascular risks are actually elevated. So there's a couple other tools that the medical community would use. One would be a DEXA scan. It's actually a radiographic scan that shows us your exact amount of skeletal muscle, bone, adipose tissue, and then we can make very accurate predictions about where your cardiac risk is there. But we don't all have DEXA scan technology in our offices. So the next level that people go to is bioelectrical impedance analysis scans. It uses the electrical impedance of the tissues in your body to measure your total body water. So it's convenient. It's very fast, but... It can fluctuate depending upon hydration status. Yes. Hydration status, recent ingestion of food, changes it by 8 to 9%. Have you toileted recently? (laughs) What clothing are you wearing? Is it during your menstruation cycle? It should Mm. ideally be in your follicular cycle. Mm -hmm. And so exercise, food intake, water intake, 
body temperature and even the room temperature. Mm. So it's a tool, but it's not 100% accurate. We've decided to use a Fit 3D scan. It takes the measurement of the patient with a four-point scale, getting their weight. We plug in their height. It also will measure your height and all of your circumferential measurements with three high-resolution sensors that are going to take measurements from your neck all the way down to your legs. So 3D mapping of your body service area. Right. And so what you're going to get with that report is a 3D avatar. So you actually kind of see this avatar of your body and of yourself. All of the data collected by the scan is going to go into a cloud and they use DEXA scan data and convert it to make the best and most accurate predictions on your lean and fat mass. Um, And then they compare it to the peers of your age group and sex. And then you can capture those measurements over time. It'll give you a posture report, your basic metabolic rate predictions, and then really give us a better idea of your body composition and weight changes over time. Instead of me just having you pop on the scale and Mm -hmm. using my tape measure around your weight. Sure. So that's really super helpful when people do change weights because we want to know, are you losing lean muscle or are you losing fat? For sure. That's a question that a lot of people pose to me. Maybe I just have 80 pounds of extra muscle. Well, probably not that much extra muscle, but you could have heavier bone mass. You could have a heavier muscle mass, but not to the extent that it would account for that degree of, of extra body mass. So if your plan is to lose weight and you are seeking some medical assisted weight loss programs, what do you usually counsel patients with regards to when they can expect to see some of those results? A lot of patients think, okay, well, I'm just going to lose 60 pounds in the next two months. Then I'll wait three months. I'm going to have my surgery in five months. And I'm thinking, I don't think that seems like a realistic plan. For a lot of these people, it took them maybe 10 years to put all that extra weight on. It doesn't seem reasonable to assume that it would take two months to get rid of it. What are your thoughts about that? That's a conversation we often have very early in the process because one, when we're trying to make lifestyle changes, change is hard. And so I give people usually that first month to do change in their diet composition. We're not worried about your calories. We're not worried about your macros, protein, carbs, and fats. What we're worried about is your food selections, right? And then the next month we really hone in on calories and what kind of tracking that might look like for you or how we're going to alter that, whether it be with exercise and your diet or diet alone because you have activity restrictions. But when we start to look at making sustainable, healthy changes, I think a reasonable goal for most people is a pound a week. That does seem reasonable. So when you're thinking, okay, they want to lose 60 pounds, you're over a year out at that point. Yeah. And very often when we talk about first, we change our diet selections. So when people come back that first month, more than half people come back with a little bit of weight loss. So we've probably decreased increase some glycogen stores in the muscles. We've shed a little water weight. And then they may plateau just a little bit as they're figuring out their calorie intake because people don't realize how much their calories can be affected by that dinner out, the wine that they're drinking in the evening, you know, their beer with their buddies, things like that, that we maybe aren't tracking. We're not accounting for in our intake. So there's a plateau and then kind of a grabbing hold phase where the patient's like, okay, I've figured out where some of my leaky areas are Mm -hmm. here that I'm going to plug. I I usually tell patients to start with the low-hanging fruit, meaning the stuff that seems so obvious, but they haven't really addressed, like the sodas. That means both regular colas and diet colas, neither one of those are helpful. And in fact, there's a fair amount of evidence that suggests that artificial sweeteners are going to negatively impact your microbiome and lead to additional weight gain. So just because you're taking something that says diet, buyer beware, right? Probably not so much of a diet. Eliminating the sodas, eliminating candies and desserts, alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol is seven calories per gram. Like fats, nine carbs and protein are four. So alcohol per volume is pretty high from a caloric perspective. And obviously we all know that it's of no benefit to you. It's inflammatory. So then it's things like the breads and the pastas and the processed carb fillers. For a lot of people, just starting with some of those obvious things can be hugely impactful. But what you were saying earlier about not having multiple family members each on different meal plans, if you're the head of the household, if you're a parent with kids, I just make my kids eat whatever. I'm not going to make them something separate. Maybe they don't like exactly what I'm making, but you know what? I'm the adult here, so I get to decide what's healthy. And maybe you want Twinkies 
I'm sure my kids would love if I bought Twinkies. I'm sure. I'm sure they would be ecstatic if I just gave them jars of candy. Do you know I never tried a Twinkie until I met my husband? Really? You're not missing. Well, you weren't missing much. I, I think that's the one Twinkie I've ever tried. But to your point, some of the best advice I have ever received was from my pediatrician when my daughter was a toddler. And he's like, she will not let herself starve. You make her her food. She eats what she wants. If she doesn't want it, she pushes it away. You know, because you know how headstrong toddlers are. Yeah. And so she, he, he's like, don't worry about it. Save it. If they're really hungry, they'll eat it. You know. Mm-hmm. And what what's the statistic? It takes being introduced to something seven times before you're really like, oh yeah, I I do like this because it takes time for our taste buds to acclimate to new things. So even as an adult trying to change your diet, you may hate that alternate food that you have swapped out until you've tried it seven times and then you're like it's not so bad that's a good point because some of the some of the gluten-free choices are a bit tough just taste wise but some of them are really good even just coming off of you know you're talking about low-hanging fruit i've counseled people about their diet and i ask them to come with a week overview of what you're taking in and be honest with me because i can't help you if you don't tell me right sure and so they're like well i get a 44 ounce mountain dew every day oh yeah if you're used to drinking a 44 ounce Mountain Dew on your way to work every day, it's going to take some time for you to enjoy the water or the mm-hmm. lemon water or the unsweetened tea that we switch you to. I saw a patient who was telling me how she doesn't know why she had extra weight. She eats perfectly. But every time she would come in, she would have, what's the biggest size Starbucks thing? Is it oh venti gosh, or venti. super venti? Even bigger than the, the venti. I don't know. And she would always come in with that like double macchiato. I think it was about like 500 calories. So every time I would see her, she had one. Well, I only see you a small fraction of your life. It may be that you're just oblivious to some of the things that you're consuming. But I think if you're honest with yourself and you keep a a really honest food journal and just even for a week, it may be pretty enlightening. Oh my goodness. I went back and had five handfuls of nuts after 10 p.m. Nuts are great, but there are tons of calories. Right. And even I think you said that they might be oblivious to it. That happens. But oftentimes I think it's that we know. Part of the benefit of being in the Live Better program for weight loss is that we're your accountability partner. I'm not going to come in and be like, that's totally cool that you're drinking a whole (laughs) keg of soda. I'm going to tell you that's a place that we can make some improvement. And oftentimes my patients will say, I'm so glad we're meeting today because I really had to motivate myself to get back on the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we know what it is that we're doing and then we guide you with the things that you don't know. But that accountability is really valuable. I had one of your patients tell me recently, which is a patient of both of ours, I canceled a couple appointments with Tara because I've been eating out and going to fast food restaurants and not exercising at all. And I just knew it was really bad. And I didn't want her to see how I've been so off the plan. But she's like, I'm getting back on. I'm going to reschedule. So you're right. I think people do know. And it is helpful to have someone who's on your side and is looking to help you with all the tools that we have available to us, get you to where you want to be. But yeah, we want to hold you accountable because we have the same goal in mind. Yeah. Well, we were talking about cooking for meals for one household. When I was educated for the nurse practitioner, they barely went over nutrition and even in nursing school, barely went over nutrition. And so I knew about the baseline and the FDA, the food chart mm. and the my plate. You know. It was eight servings of grains. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what it is anymore. It's I kind know. of crazy. Yeah. It's like eight to 12. It can't be that many. Right. Let me pull it up. Yeah. But, it's the um, food pyramid, right? Or is it something different now? I think it's still called the food pyramid the food pyramid okay so at the bottom six to eleven servings of bread cereal rice and pasta okay two to four fruits three to five vegetables two to three milk yogurt cheese two to three meat poultry fish eggs beans nuts and then on the top is fat oil sweets well and you and i touched on this a little bit earlier but that is a very carb heavy pyramid right and then it says six to eleven servings which is very deceiving as well like look at that plate of pasta (laughs) that is for your entire family there's a whole loaf of bread here (laughs) really you need way less carbs than that the non-starchy vegetable carbs you could probably eat as many of those as you want right you know like you're not gonna overdo it on celery and broccoli and all carbs are not 
Well, for right. sure. So you could probably use many of those. The two or three servings of the meats is probably good. Probably having more healthy fats. I don't know about the milk, yogurt, cheese. Those are probably all just more of like you like them than you specifically need them. Right. And yeah, getting some fruits is good, but like grapes are really, there's a big pile of grapes on there. Super sugar loaded. I mean, it's a nice graphic and it makes sense, but I don't really think that that's based on any evidence, unfortunately. Sorry, FDA. Do some more evidence-based recommendations with regards to your food. So I usually recommend more of like the 40, 30, 30, 40 carbs, 30% well, protein, having, 30% fats. It, it depends on the person. I know that when I say carbs to my patient, they're thinking, oh, that's how many slices of bread and pasta I can have. But when, you know, yeah, when we're talking we about say, vegetables, fruits, and yeah, we're the grains like and such. Carbs yeah. in, in totality. And so I have found super restrictive carb diets. People will cut out their vegetables and they don't get the fiber they need. Mm-hmm. As the person making the meals, you get to decide what's being purchased and what's in your home. Right. You and your significant other, if you have one, and not your kids. So yeah, you can't let the inmates run the asylum. And it takes time <laughs> to transition over to a new diet, whether it's yourself or your kids. And kids have very little control in their little world, but what can they control? What they put in their mouth, mm-hmm. right? And so if you give them a new type of food that they're not interested in and they go on a starvation strike, you know, they feel like that's their way of exerting power. But one of the most important gifts you can give your child is helping them figure out healthy eating. Healthy lifestyle. Right. That is. Um, Because here we are trying to figure it out in our 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond, right? Because we didn't have those tools. But if they can learn on their way and then keep things like desserts as a sometimes treat, mm-hmm. keep things like alcohol if you choose to a sometimes treat. Setting a good example for your kids. The other important thing is if you're going to take something away that they really like, replace it with an alternative. So if you guys always had soda in your house, maybe you're replacing it with some vitamin water or non-caffeinated teas or, or something. If they're used to having snacks and you took away all their snacks, give them a different kind of snack, a snack that's healthier. So if that means that once a week you cut up a veggie tray and they can pull out of it cool if that means you have a healthier drinks that aren't sugar loaded great involve them in that process right like when we go to the grocery what new thing do you want to try it has to be in this section but i'm gonna let you pick so i had to change my lifestyle i was just you know a farm girl kind of grew up in the meat potato and a and a canned veggie right (laughs) as an adult had to learn what healthy diet really looked like and my kids came along that journey with us and now they will be like hey mom you know can you pick up some Brussels sprouts that sounds really good and I look at my teen and I'm like absolutely I will find you some Brussels sprouts nice. so it can happen it can be done do we still have some healthy treats absolutely do we still have unhealthy treats yeah sometimes but not it's not in the cabinet and being eaten every day sure. so I just want to encourage our families out there you can make that healthy change and what a gift to give them yeah you don't want the issues that you have as an adult whether it's high blood pressure or diabetes or being overweight I can't imagine any parent wants that for their kids they want their kids to be healthy and happy and have mm-hmm. a great long life and, and look good and feel good about themselves. And so that starts in your home as a parent. Yeah. In the medical community, we're seeing those age-related illnesses that really started 30s and 40s. We're seeing them in kids and teens, hypertension, diabetes. They can look at the aorta of 20-year-olds that have had really poor lifestyle and they're already seeing substantial atherosclerotic changes, which is disturbing. So already I'm having a few patients that are coming on as couples. When you have two people in the household working with the same goals, you're just, you're doing so much better. That's cool. I think that goes true with smoking too. If you're trying to quit smoking and your partner is still chain smoking, it's going to be really hard to quit. But anyways, well, thanks Tara. That was fun. Yeah. For weight loss, there are so many good things about being at your ideal healthy weight and so many bad things about not. So if you're going to invest in something in your life that's important, being healthy so that you can actually live a longer, healthier life seems like a pretty good investment. So whether it's with our help or someone else's help, I certainly encourage people that are struggling with weight or know someone that is to help that person get the assistance they need to get to their goal so they can you know, live a happy, happier, healthier, longer life. Yeah, those non-scale benefits make it so worthwhile. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, have a good night or day, whatever it is.